This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The title of my talk is The Image and the Idol, A Theological Reflection on AI Bias. Bias is a rightly unpopular phenomenon in our day. But in one sense, we are all and must be biased. When we deliberate about an action, when we wish to select a course other than that suggested by impulse, instinct, and habit, we must capture and interpret reality. We must schematize it to make sense of it and direct our action within and toward it. Even before such deliberation, interpretive reductions are also part of our biological makeup, e.g. in our selective sensitivities to the impinging environment, in how our nervous system makes stimuli to feel, and in our uniquely rational tendency to wonder about and to conceptualize the things that we experience. Whether inborn, habitual, or carefully considered, our reductions can yield insights. We are revolted by the smell of rot. We tell children that some berries are edible and others are only for birds. We discuss race as both real and socially constructed, and we talk about degrees of realism in our accounts of how we know the world. On the other hand, our perceptual and conceptual specifications are undesirable biases when they are not so much selective of the scope of human life and action as they are distortive within it. That I cannot, but bees can, see ultraviolet reflecting markings on flowers, or that fire pains me, these are examples of selectivity. A three-year-old's greater comfort with own race faces, radiating from an innocuous preference for the primary caregiver's face, or a child's expectation that a secretary will be female, are bounds, however, that ought to be expanded by rearing, lest they become biases governing one's life. Because what is beneficial to family bonding, and sometimes statistically accurate in waiting rooms, is a distortion when it becomes a conscious or unconscious norm governing one's societal experience and behavior. I tell my children the same thing about their preference for french fries and pizza. These are selections that ought to be expanded. The tension between how our images of reality make it navigable and how these same images may distort it is markedly apparent in the phenomenon of AI bias. Contemporary machine learning techniques especially deep neural networks that dominate today's landscape, have yielded AI systems that, despite astounding successes, are also notorious for their biases. Especially in areas of race and gender, these biases range from the jarring, for instance, Barack Obama's pixelated face is reconstructed, that is, confabulated at high resolution, as Caucasian, and the troubling, for instance, Amazon's face recognition software marketed to law enforcement agencies was 31% less effective at determining the gender of women of color than of light-skinned men to the life-changing. For instance, Amazon's experimental hiring algorithm discriminated against women and even the frightening, such as prison sentences influenced by racially correlated inaccuracies in the Compass algorithm's prediction of recidivism. A hospital software's, uh, a hospital's software for predicting care needs also consistently deprioritized equally sick black patients. 
Biases can arise from the data set on which an AI is trained. A bias can also be coded into the architecture of the systems, human interpretation of the results, and combinations of such factors. Each etiology calls for a unique solution. However, the general predicament can be illuminated as it applies to our own ethical lives by being set within early Christian discourse on the idol. For this, I look especially to North African theologian and bishop Augustine of Hippo, who lived from 354 to 430. An Augustinian reflection on AI bias suggests three claims. First, technology and idolatry become intertwined when technology is extended by humans toward an unfettered domination of the world. Secondly, Contemporary AI's great success, the deep neural network, is open to idolatrous misuse at several levels, both because it is an image that can replace reality and because it somewhat echoes the character of the idolatrous mind. Third, Augustine's solution to idolatry, God's self-revealing incarnation as one of us, suggests that optimistic technological imaginaries of an AI-driven future are essentially inadequate to the needs of human life. So first, technology and idolatry. Tools function to extend and facilitate the human will, working upon the world. There is nothing inherently evil in this. It is why I use screwdrivers, why we use pens, Evil, Augustine would tell us, is located rather in the potential choice to reduce all things to the role of fulfilling one's own desires. A tool employed for this end becomes an idol. Augustine calls this totalizing instrumentalization pride in Latin superbia, not a healthy regard for one's own accomplishments, but a preference for domination rather than self-gift. He explains that superbia originates when, quote, the soul abandons God as its highest aspiration and seeks instead to become its own satisfaction, a kind of end to itself, end quote. Our personhood, Augustine believes, is constituted by God the creator, and in relationship with him and with one another, we will find our final fulfillment. To be one's own satisfaction, then, one must escape one's need for relationships with others and ultimately with God. To do this, superbia suborns all things to oneself by judging them according to the satisfaction of one's own desires. Therefore, he writes, more is often given for a horse than for a servant, more given for a jewel than for a maid, because the necessity of the needy or the desire of the pleasure seeker considers not a thing's value in itself, but rather how it meets one's need or pleasantly titillates the bodily sense." End quote. Superbia extends this self-centered evaluation of the world into an illusory domination of it by what Augustine calls idolatry. For Augustine, idolatry does not fundamentally mean offering incense before manufactured images, although one might do this. It is more subtle. The idolater replaces the true God with some lower reality, a reality that can be comprehended within the idolater's own horizon of valuation and power. 
And since this reality is controlled by the, the idolater, the idolater is thus covertly set at the pinnacle of all hierarchies, accomplishing total domination by ignoring all that cannot be controlled through the idol. The Babylonians sacrificed to their statues to gain harvest-bringing storms and peace-giving victories. Ebenezer Scrooge set money as his horizon and was self-blinded to all that money could not buy. Both cases are idolatrous because both attempt to deny one's need for God by positioning oneself as the masters of the levers of what really defines the universe. It is human to navigate reality in light of images, schemas, and devices that are oriented to action within reality. But these tools become idols when superbia clings to them in place of reality, denying all that cannot be compassed within their horizon of apprehension and control. Part two, deep neural networks as both image and idol. An artificial neural network receives a pattern of information as numerical values at its input nodes, which are connected with various strengths to layer upon layer of further nodes. At each node, when the sum of incoming connections exceeds some preset threshold, that node will fire, and its own signal will be transmitted variously to nodes on a further layer, and so on. If you put in a pattern at the beginning, it is transformed as its elements are recombined and processed until something else comes out on the final layer of the network. A network can be trained to produce the desired behavior by adjusting the strengths of its connections, thus adjusting the contribution made by each node to each recombination and in due course to the final result. A piano offers a poor analogy, but a useful image. If you have ever shouted into a piano with its sustaining pedal held down, then you have heard its tuned strings resonate with the different frequencies of your shout. What you get back is a sort of echo, not of your words, but of the tones of your voice. Similarly, the neural network as it is tuned, that is, as its connection strengths are adjusted, begins to resonate with the entangled relations implicit in our world including relations that cannot easily be discerned or logically represented by human investigators. But by its training, the neural network does not just echo the world, it transforms its input to make explicit those relations that are of interest to the trainer. The deep neural network is called deep because it has not two or three, but dozens or more layers with perhaps millions of connections. Such a network, when trained, becomes a sort of image. As AI researcher Kate Crawford explains, it predictively generalizes, performing an induction by, she writes, learning from specific examples, which data points to look for in new examples, end quote. One might hope that given a rich, rich enough set of examples, the trained network could accommodate the messiness of the real world without any reductive bias. As noted above, this has not proven to be the case. Instead, deep neural networks often manifest systematic or consistently reproduced classification errors when presented with new examples. Whatever the particulars of this or that case, 
Augustine's theological analysis discloses deeper principles of this bias in three potentially idolatrous moments. The human collection of training data, human interpretation of network activity, and the network itself as it echoes the human mind. So first, one might say from a theological point of view that idolatry is seeded in the collection of training data. Classifications are technologies that produce but also limit our ways of knowing. They are built into the logic of AI. In presuming to reduce the world accurately to the terms definable within a data set, system, desire, system designers exercise a power to decide which differences make a difference, as Crawford calls it. Often and without acknowledgement, these decisions will flatten complex dynamics, social, cultural, political, and historical, in order to render them quantifiable entities that may or may not represent these dynamics accurately. On the other hand, to avoid such choices, designers may train systems on numerous measurements gathered by countless devices across multitudinous interactions in the hope that discovering the deep harmonics of this big data, the network will have laid hold of the reality of importance. But here too, we choose to believe that what can be measured is all that need be measured, allowing the affordances of our tools, as Crawford puts it, to become the horizon of truth that determines our action in the real world. These approaches are fraught with what Augustine would consider to be idolatrous potential because the supposedly context-free human must be made master over the domain in question in order to present it usefully to the neural network. By our focus on big data as a self-constituted and suitable stand-in for the world, we deny our role in choosing it. We seek independence from needing to have a point of view, and so we practice the potentially prideful illusion of mastery with data as a proxy for our own ultimacy. We deny our dependence upon and foundation in a larger reality. We deny our limitations by making ourselves the arbiters of the relevant data space. Idolatry beckons also in that the aboutness of machine learning depends on our intentionality. A series of voltage levels on microscopic transistors does not supply its own conceptual interpretation. We supply it by framing the device's activities in our own conceptual space, just as we do for the smudges that we call words and the cellulose aggregates that we call books. This is not wrong. It must be done. The machine learning system maps data inputs to predictive or action-selecting outputs in light of our purposes. This is what gives it meaning. But are those purposes honored by the input data? And are they honored by the way that we have trained the outputs? Is our conceptual framing of the network actually supported by its activity? Neural networks are opaque in that their interior sensitivities are not wholly interpretable. Computer scientist Peter Norvig argues that at best their statistical attunement, quote, describes what does happen, but making no claim to correspond to the generative process used by nature, it doesn't answer the question of why it happens.
end quote. Therefore, the network cannot signal whether its apparent success on the training set actually engages the phenomenon of interest directly or instead latches on to some correlated but non-determinative variable. For example, a network that takes in prisoners' data points and outputs their chance of committing a crime again may appear to reach significant accuracy across a convict population, but it may simply have learned to prioritize convicts from high crime zip codes, like the system that flagged as bone fractures all x-rays that happened to come from a hospital with a high proportion of trauma cases. Both methods, despite their putatively high accuracy across a population, are hardly meaningful when applied to individuals. Alternatively, the network may not be accurate at all, but to recognize its bias may take time. The system that deprioritized <clears throat> black hospital patients did so because they had fewer health expenditures. But health expenditures are a useful proxy for sickliness only if sickly persons have access to health care and money to spend on it. And many African Americans do not. Only the long-term failure of care outcomes at that hospital and the racial correlation with care allocation revealed the problem. In the physical world, a mangled steak quickly proves the dullness of the carving knife. But a black box AI system that seems to perform can be followed blindly because we have labeled the outputs according to our intended horizon of control, in service of which we expect the system to generate a good mapping, whether or not that mapping can actually be achieved. Unable to see immediately whether or not the emperor has any clothes, we allow the network to idolatrously replace reality because it gives us the appearance of control over dynamics that we ourselves do not understand. Thirdly, the trained network itself resembles Augustine's analysis of the idolatrous mind. For Augustine, and as modern psychology and many philosophies will affirm, every act of understanding is shaped by one's desires and movements of will. For Augustine, we begin by apprehending something through the senses, and then implicitly or explicitly, we judge it as good, that is for Augustine, as real, by clinging to it in some way with our approbation or our love. So clinging, we conceive a conceptual understanding, which he calls a verbum mentis, word of the mind. This understanding is shaped by our attraction to some aspect of the thing known. Knowledge is thus contoured to the knower. We know about a thing, what we love in it, and we must love something in it in order to know it at all. Or, as the scholastics learned from Aquinas, quid quid recipitur ad modum recipientes recipitur. Whatever is received is received according to the measure or manner of the receiver. Many such acts of understanding, according to Augustine, weave in our minds a habitual fabric upon which reality is known. More particular than, more perfectly than any particular user of the machine learning system, the network itself becomes an image of an idolatrous fabric of mind. Its interior workings represent those facets of reality that we have chosen to represent to it. Facets of reality that it reshapes 
in mapping them to the outputs that represent the willed purposes of its designers. And so, to the extent that we rely upon the network for real-world action, we carry forward into the world the stance of will, and only the stance of will, that the network implicitly represents. Is all this really a problem? After all, it is nothing new to say that to a hammer every problem looks like a nail. In other words, if we use neural networks for what they're useful for, if we accurately interpret the scope of meaning of their outputs, then we won't go wrong. But this is not entirely true. The concept of idolatry points to a systemic cognitive effects of how we treat AI. Too often, AI is credited with an esoteric power to penetrate reality in a way that transcends the limits of human understanding. While it certainly does exceed our powers of correlation and inference, contemporary machine learning cannot actually transcend the human horizon because in the end it maps human selected data points to human interpreted outputs of inference and action. If we credit it with more, if we neglect the crucial role of our own wills, then, as the psalm warns concerning the idols, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them." End quote. That is, having made our idols to manipulate some sphere, we will be bound by what they can represent. Concretely, we may think of the case of predictive policing. The PredPol algorithm and other such systems direct police units to anticipated geographical hotspots. These are selected by networks trained on past reported crime events, weather conditions, ATM and convenience store locations, and other environmental factors associated with crime. Patrolling these locations does indeed appear to reduce the incidence of such crimes, and often less by arrest than by deterrent. However, the apparent objectivity of PredPol's ongoing training cannot in the end procure some transhuman predictive insight. Crimes, after all, are reported by citizens, but also by police officers. An elevated predicted crime rate will call forth greater police presence, possibly increasing the assessed crime rate as officers seek and find otherwise invisible or unreported infractions. These locations will then appear more distinctively crime-ridden than they are, further biasing the system and perhaps in the end reducing its effectiveness. Additionally, over-policing, that is, intensive crime-seeking, more aggressive police responses in assumedly high-crime areas and more stops of innocent persons, can break down community relations exacerbating negative outcomes in the long term. When we feign independence from the world that we seek to control, when we ignore the fact that the system feeds on our own AI-driven interventions, then we conform the world to the idol. In that the AI is a means of control, and not just a response to the world, we risk deforming the world by our uncritical use of it. By policing according to prediction, we procure, or at least we believe that we see, the results that were predicted. What then may we do about the idolatrous use of biased AI? I haven't time tonight to unfold a full solution, but I can say this much. 
While some address AI bias with case-by-case tweaks, a theological solution contemplates a more radical resolution, asserting that the ultimate context framing all goodness and meaning, the context in which this problem could actually be resolved, must necessarily transcend human and artificial understanding. In other words, a theological solution looks toward God. The Christian tradition holds that idolatrous superbia is resolved by revelation and by love. God is the always excessive frame within which alone reality can be understood as it is, and not just according to my particular will. And since no knowledge is possible apart from our particular loves, Augustine would argue that a true knowledge will always ultimately love the thing known in God. For Predpole, this means that when officers swarm a predicted hotspot, they must arrive not as crime-seeking servants of the artificially intelligent idol, but as, yes, loving humans seeking to serve other humans. A simple solution, but one that's been difficult for long before machine learning. Augustine would trace this difficulty back to the distortion of our wills by superbia. We seek idols because we seek to make ourselves gods. What we need is for the fundamental and final context, God himself, to reveal himself on our terms. But to receive this revelation, we would have to be given by God a new love by which to know him as he is, beyond the limitations of our finite wills, not as rivals to him, not as reducing him to the scope of our lives, but as fellows, as participants in his life. Indeed, Augustine would say, this has happened, and is happening, and is the message of Christianity. Or as another ancient writer put it, God became human that we might become gods. These reflections have taken us far beyond what most computer scientists, technologists, and philosophers would consider to be home territory, but that is precisely the point. We can avoid the solipsistic disorientation of the technological idol only when grounded in something quite beyond us, quite beyond our mastery and illusions thereof, and yet quite very much our home. Thank you. Yes. Hi. Hi. Very for this oh, you're welcome. Um, I was wondering if you believe that superbia is an inevitable consequence of atheism. Of atheism. Well, if I'm going to give an Augustinian answer, which I would incline to agree with, superbia is an inevitable consequence of being human. It, it lurks in all of us. And uh, there's nothing, well, not nothing, but uh, belief in God and even uh, sincere love of God is not going to be a um, is not going to be a, a fail-safe hedge against superbia. You know, I I, I have three small children, and uh, well, not so small. One is thirteen now, but uh, um, I know the temptation of superbia. You watch your son play a soccer game, and he comes really close to scoring a goal, and you want him to score the goal because you want him to feel that thrill. And you enjoy it. And you also know that your neighbors are sitting next to you by the sideline. 
And part of you wants your child to score the goal. Why? That Augustine would say, because I've transformed my child into an idol. Not in that I love my child too much, but I love my child in that moment that there's that little flicker of that instrumental love where my child becomes a lever by which to control my social standing. A reduction of the... So superbia beckons us all. It's everywhere. As for whether it's a necessary consequence of atheism, um, well, I... Yeah, I think in some sense Augustine would say yes, that if one is, if one, if atheism implies the denial of any transcendent horizon beyond the application of my will, then that's actually the very definition of superbia for Augustine. So he wouldn't be saying, well, atheists tend to be bad people. He would say that that, def that very definition of atheism already incorporates within it the definition of superbia. The, the, the shearing of myself away from rootedness in a wider reality that ultimately transcends even me. That being said, I've, I've met plenty of atheists who were, seemed more humble than I am. So <laughs> atheism is a slippery thing, just like belief in God is a slippery thing. People can say these things, but the question is, like, how are they, what is the real deep texture of their mind on this matter? And, and, and uh, that becomes a little difficult to judge. Yeah. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, so um, there's a point I'd like to clarify. Sure. And that, um, sort of idolatry seems that it could apply to um, all sufficiently advanced tools, like everything that we could really um, be tempted to rely upon, like atomic power to cars to such. So I'm wondering if there's anything like specifically about AI, other than it's like extreme usefulness in certain circumstances, that um, makes it inherently uh, more likely to uh, Tempt us towards idolatry, or is that anything that was as powerful and potentially useful as AI would tempt the same way? Well, that's a great question. I, I think the thing, the interesting thing about AI and what I find so exciting about it um, is the way in which uh, if you if you can represent something about the world to the computer, to the neural network, and you can represent the mapping or the classification or the action selection that you desire from it. You can get something. Might not always be very good, but it is often quite uncanny in its effectiveness. So, yeah, you could say that sure, a um, I don't know, a trumpet player or something could make an idol of his trumpet if, for him, there was nothing in the world but music. But he'd die pretty quickly because he wouldn't eat. Uh, so the the thing about AI is that it hides the way or that the way we use it hides from us the way in which it is, it depends upon a human-mediated reduction of reality precisely in order to gain insight into reality. And in that, I think it's different. You can say to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but to a human that is kind of moving around in the world, even if they're holding a hammer, you'd have to try to make everything look like a nail to you to become hammer-like. But when AI is suggesting all your purchases, uh, the advertisements you see, the programs you watch, uh, eventually, you know, the, the people that you date, uh, the decisions that you make, uh, the healthcare choices, mental health choices, psychotherapy, when all these things eventually are being handled by AI, the question arises, does it see the world as widely as we can, or by our exclusive and thoroughgoing dependence upon it, do we risk missing everything that can't be embraced by it? Does it then become an idol? Like here, here's where we make idols very clearly in our daily life, like the GPS. 
how many people have ever known a shorter way to get somewhere and they're pretty sure it's shorter, but the GPS says, no, turn left here. And then you know it's shorter because they're always, well, maybe not here in Texas, but in Michigan, there's one way to the airport where their tractor is always on the road and it's slow. But I've gone on that tractor route three or four times because I think, well, maybe Apple knows something I don't today. And that kind of um, renunciation of my responsibility for my own particular knowledge of things makes me 15 minutes late to the airport because wouldn't you know what a tractor pulled onto the road just like they always do. Yes? Um, so from my understanding, like, kind of the entire field of statistics has always sort of had this problem of just kind of taking this very complex reality and trying to boil it down to something that our minds can actually understand and make decisions with. How would you say kind of the just issues with like AI and idolatry relate at all to just statistical models, even without computers? Sure. I, I'm thinking of the movie Moneyball. Has anybody seen Moneyball? I, I, my movie references are, it's a moving target. Students, you get like, there was this trough where nobody had seen Star Wars about five years ago, but now the freshmen, they've all seen all the Star Wars. And so I can go back to making Star Wars references in class. But anyway, in this movie Moneyball, which is a great movie, um, Brad Pitt is, it's, and it's, I take it, it's, a, it's my understanding, it's, it's more than loosely based on, on a true story. Uh, he comes to manage a failing baseball team, and uh, he decides to do the whole thing by statistics. Like Instead of sending talent scouts out to kind of get a feeling about some kid they see playing on a local baseball field, we're going to check who actually gets on base. That's all that matters. Who gets his, they can get on first base, they can get to second base, third base. Who actually makes the runs? Do it all by stats, and we'll have a winning team. And the interesting thing about the movie, and I'm not sure how much the movie follows the history, but let's say it does, is that they always almost win. Like his proof of concept is vindicated to some extent. They do a lot better than they did, but they lose the championship or whatever it is, the World Series. They lose whatever championship they're in, they lose it. And so there's a limit to the statistics. And there's the the movie plays it as this kind of... um, uh, kind of conflict between the talent scouts who thinks that think they have an intuition like they can just look at a guy and they can tell if, if he's going to play well or not, and then the more hard nosed uh, stats managing guys and you kind of side with the stats guys in the in the uh, in the movie. But interestingly, you side with the stats guys because you're rooting for Brad Pitt. You're rooting for a person, and you come to know him through the movie. You come to like, you come to love his love him and his engagement, his desire to understand these deep things and to do well for his baseball team. And so I think where statistics fail us is when they become a veil between us and persons. And that has to happen. If you're, if you're a credit card company looking for fraud or an insurance company looking for, you know, because you're dealing with aggregates, but when persons are reduced to data points in an aggregate, say in courtroom sentencing, uh, or in, or even in that kind of that that slight edge between always almost winning and actually winning the championship, then you have to return to the deeper reality that is human beings, the deeper reality that is nature. There's something three-year-olds know when they. I was saying to the guys earlier, coffee. There's something three-year-olds know when they squat down staring into a puddle. It's really aggravating if you're out on a walk with a maybe it's more like a two-year-old and they just want to stare at everything. And you're locked into that mode of like, I have to get back, I have to get back, there's the next thing, my clothes would all the time. But what are they doing? They're absorbing the deep fabric of reality. They're doing what we hope these deep neural networks are doing. 
but they're doing it in such a way that they're not doing it for merely functional outcomes, as with the neural networks or the baseball stats and Moneyball. They're doing it, why? Because they, they love reality. And so we have to retain that. We have to, whatever, whatever machine learning generates for us, and this is why I'm not in that field anymore, but I still find it fascinating. I, I, like I read the paper on Alpha Zero and I was really excited by it because there's something there that it's touching. But then we have to ask, what is that? We have to get, let it lead us deeper into reality and not just become a kind of like swipe down the checklist, have a reduction that makes me, you know, that, that, that actually alleviates the burden of my engagement with the real world. Yeah. Yes, sir. Do you think a lot of these views uh, that, you know, AI theories might have, but also other people like materialists might have, where they place reason above any type of faith, especially they place uh, reason above God, this can be traced back to the Enlightenment. Do you think, um, well, first of all, do you think that that can be traced back to the Enlightenment or even earlier? Um, well, yeah. And then um, how would you connect this to faith? Do you think sure. that a person that actually has faith in the proper way is more immune to all of these different idolatrous positions, whether it be AI or a blinding faith on, on reason? Okay, so I guess I'll start with faith. If we take a kind of medieval understanding of faith, well, well, first let's take Richard Dawkins' understanding of faith. Uh, he gave some talk once. Dawkins, this is the God delusion guy, the uh, evolutionary biologist, and uh, and he said Christians make a virtue out of ignorance. They praise faith. They praise belief apart from or even against evidence. And the way he describes it, it does sound stupid. Uh, what is virtuous about simply believing something by force of will, uh, it, believing a certain set of propositions? But that's not the Christian understanding of faith. No, uh, but instead it, of Dawkins, why don't we take Kant, for example? Well, hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm trying to embrace your, I'm trying to like, give a good, good answer to your question. So the Christian understanding of faith is, uh, it, this is why in Christian belief, faith is not simply a, a sort of human belief, but is a gift from the Holy Spirit. They see it as, an, the tradition presents it as an illumination, not a Kierkegaardian leap into the darkness, um, but an illumination that actually allows a deeper vision of reality by placing one in contact with God. Aquinas says that faith is a participation in the self-knowledge of God. Faith allows one to believe rightly something that transcends one's own mind. Uh, an, an example Aquinas gives is, he says, a saw, like a saw can cut, a, it cuts a one-dimensional line. That's what it does of its own form. But to live by faith and by the charity infused by the Holy Spirit is as if this saw is being wielded three-dimensionally, he says, to cut a bench. You must be thinking of a different kind of saw than I am, but like a, like a flexible one, like you see in those, um, stained glass windows where St. Joseph's holding a really curved saw or something like waka waka waka. You can like, it's more like a jigsaw, right? That can move and groove, dare I say, in three dimensions, uh, even though it's a one dimensional object. And that non-reductive capacity to interact with this kind of higher dimensional space is, is kind of what the Christian tradition understands by faith as a type of illuminated knowledge. So you ask, like, what, what then is, the, what then is the, uh, the tendency to exalt reason above God? Well, how, would, how would we read that from a Christian or an Augustinian theological position? We can think of uh, Thomas Hobbes, uh, where for Hobbes, reasoning 
is the manipulation, logical manipulation of symbolically representable data. Reasoning is a form of craft. Reasoning is not an engagement with the depth of reality, but is a kind of manipulation of the things of fixed points that we know in reality. You can think that's it's a great analogy for the way a digital computer works. And that's a useful form of reasoning, but a more ancient understanding of reasoning is that that kind of manipulation has to be anchored within the wider horizon that is conferred by, by uh, like the Greek sense of nous, the, the intuitive mind that can grasp the field of contact with reality, not just a manipulation of data points. So that our discursive reasoning, which is a good thing, we, I'm talking here, we're working through things, like we have to do that, that's not bad, but that becomes an engagement with reality rather than a reduction of reality when it's understood as happening within this wider horizon. And that's why uh, the medieval definition of theology, the theologia, is an account of God, a logos concerning God, an account of God that is rendered by faith-seeking understanding. Uh, uh, and fides quarens intellectum. That intellectum for the medievals is not a sort of bullet point list of like, I've, I've turned the crank, I've worked it all out, now I know my definition and I can go home and I can, I can you know, sneer at anybody who doesn't agree with my definitions. No, intellectus is this intuitive apprehension. It's a contact. It's more, if we want to go to a kind of platonic way of talking about it, there's, there's an erotic dimension to this, not in the merely sexual sense, but, but a kind of love that yearns, that reaches forward toward communion with reality. And so in that sense, yes, reason cannot be exalted above God because reason properly understood is engagement rather than manipulation. And ultimately, all, everything is compassed within uh, the, the, the wisdom of God himself. So yes. we are, we're anti-enlightenment. We're anti-enlightenment. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think from a kind of Christian or medieval perspective, yeah, the, the enlightenment understanding. Like Kant does it best, actually, I think, although I'm no expert on that period of philosophy, but, but you can say this about Kant. Kant says that there are certain things that simply must be presupposed to make sense of reality. So Kant's pointing out that reality doesn't make sense of itself, and that the mind comes, he believes these are kind of hardwired ideas, or first principles that we just have that we need to get by, and he's not going to pronounce on whether they're true or not. But there is that sense, he's, he's saying, I just want to talk about what's within the horizon, I don't want to talk about where the horizon comes from. And so in that sense, I think he's, he's being fair. Yeah, yes sir. Um, I also want to sort of talk about the enlightenment a bit, specifically um, like humanistic dialectics. So like kind of looking um, back at Hegel, and, uh, who said explicitly that philosophy is above theology. And I think sort of added a, I think it was like more like secularized like kind of theology. He adds that people into the dialectic um, and Marx explicitly. So, um, so I think this idea of like this humanist dialectic where this idea is that we can, and I'm rather vulgar and simplistic about this, but the idea is that we can have a sort of socially positive feedback loop between affecting nature, nature affecting us, affecting, and ultimately for Hegel that leads to the absolute, and for Marx it leads to his communism. But I think, do you think that what you're talking about AI is almost like a, a microcosm critique of that, in, in which we say that when we do this stuff without God, what we see is that this sort of dialectic, or if you will, um, us, us doing the AI, the AI sort of affecting us, it has negative consequences. Do you think this could be a part of a microcosm of the critique of some of these more humanistic enlightenment uh, dialecticians? Um, that, <clears throat> that's a great question, and I'm, I'm, 
not an expert on Hegel or Marx, but I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Uh, so Hegel is able, as I understand it, to assert this utterly imminent framing for, uh, for our engagement with reality. Philosophy can be above theology because for him, theology is it's kind of a transitional species of myth-making. Yeah. And it's a, it's a species of reduction of reality. But as Geist, you know, as spirit unfolds itself through the history of, of mind, working upon mind, and we're all kind of, I don't want to say too much, lest I say something incorrect. There's probably somebody in the room who can do this better than I can. But in any case, we can reach the end. We can reach philosophy in which we have an accurate account of reality simply as it is, because all of reality is right here. It's all, it's all on the same plane. And for Hegel, as I understand it, it's not that uh, we can dispense with God. It's that everything, in a certain sense, is spiritual. Everything, in a certain sense, is divine. Uh, and although he wouldn't use, use those terms, everything is mind, maybe. Um, I don't know. I feel really nervous about the philosophers. About the love of wisdom, Hegel is very explicit that he wants to create a science of wisdom. Yeah. Move away from the love of wisdom. Right. So, oh, that, that's, that's really interesting. An authentic knowledge of wisdom. Yeah. Um, and then Marx, on the other hand, Marx wants to do the same thing, but Marx is going to say, we don't have to worry about the transcendent dimension. We're all just made of matter. We're matter reacting upon matter. And we have certain desires and things, and these are all definable within a this-worldly context. And so for, uh, for Marx, you know, somebody talking about the love of God or the yearning for a transcendent horizon, he'd say, look, let's talk about what's holding you back from being satisfied where you are. It's probably, <laughs> probably you don't control the means of production, etc. But he can, he can redefine all of human desire and human longing within, uh, within the... Um, within the framework of a, of a material environment. So I would say like Marxist materialism, uh, Hegelianism, and Kantianism are all really honest and straightforward about what they're doing. Everybody has to solve the problem of how can you utterly, how can you, who are someone within reality, encompass the whole of reality? It has to submit itself to you somehow, or you have to locate yourself within a, in a wider context that has some means of participation in it. And that's like, you know, faith or a, or a kind of more uh, illuminative understanding of, of what reason is. Everybody has to answer these questions. So, yeah, at least Marx is honest about what he's doing. You have a question? I do. Okay, go for it. You, you, you have one? You, you, I really ask, you just raised mine very simple. Okay. Given what you said about AI, uh, I can understand why you found it attractive. It just seemed like everything you were pointing out was that it distorts human basis of our interactions with individuals, but you also said that there was something you found really appealing about it. Yeah. Well, um, the, what I find fascinating, especially about machine learning, is that it really is like, it's like simulated wine tasting in a way. Like what happens, and I, I'm, I'm not an expert on wine. My dad's really into wine. And, uh, but I, I'm not. I'm not an expert. But I. But I find kind of fascinating the process of it. I went to this wine tasting seminar once with my dad, and I just saw a bunch of. I was like 14. I, I really wanted to be off in the corner reading a book or playing outside or something. And there were all these 40-something-year-old guys like I am now, and they were all holding these glasses and sniffing and looking at the way the wine moves and then taking it and then swishing it around in their mouths and then they started spitting it in buckets. And I was thinking like, oh, this is this is a gross scene. 
But of course, they didn't want to be too drunk to taste the wine. Um, so what are they doing? What is happening neurologically uh, when one does that? It's just like uh, Anglo, like English speakers learning to speak Chinese. There are sounds in Chinese that every baby can hear, but then through neural pruning, we can't hear it. And that's why my Chinese friends could play these jokes on, this is going somewhere. My Chinese friends could play these jokes on you that say, I don't remember, something like ma, 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 ma. And it means like, I love my mother or my grandmother's a cow. And, and they say like, ha your tones are wrong because there's something about the way you shape the sound that gives it a completely different meaning. But that mode of shaping sound is not present in English or in, in European languages in general. And so we've lost our ability to hear it. And so what happens when you learn Chinese or you go wine tasting, you, you know, the, the sommelier must, like something neurological is happening where sensitivities are developing in the tongue and the processing of those sensations that weren't there before. It's a deeper acquaintance with reality. And so when a neural network can like take, I don't know, measurements from, from 50 different uh, humidity stations and then something about the radar map and tell you that it's going to rain for exactly 15 minutes, two hours from now. That's amazing. That thing is tasting reality. And it, like I can, I could, I could presumably take the wine tasting seminars and become an expert wine taster or learn how to say the Chinese tones properly and understand it. But there's this, there are these hidden things in reality that are wondrous, these dynamics, these harmonies, however you want to describe it. It's, it's the deep music of things that can't be described by any formula, especially weather prediction. You know, there, are, there, are, there are shortcuts, there are rules of thumb, there are observed phenomena, etc. But that very chaotic stuff, that, that kind of turbulence is hard to, it can't be mathematically, symbolically represented. And so, but these neural network systems seem to do a better job of it. So there's something about that attunement to reality it's always enthralled me. Um, so I was definitely the kid. Like, I wouldn't just look at the puddle, like, stick my fingers in it, feel the mud at the bottom of it. I wanted to get into the puddle. Um, and that's, there's something about that, what neural networks do. And the problem, though, is uh, it's like when, um, if you, I bet you've read Brideshead Revisited, right? You haven't? Okay, judging from all the literature on your shelf, I see you would have. So there, now I got to recommend something for you. That's great. Okay, but there's, a, there's this book, Brideshead Revisited, and there's a scene in it where a kind of boorish English, well, no, he's a Canadian. He's not even English. He's a Canadian businessman who wants to marry this British girl. He goes out to dinner with somebody in Paris, and he just asks, like, what's your most expensive, what's your best brandy? And he takes, he gets there, or whiskey or I don't remember what it, I think it's brandy and he gets the brandy and he wants it poured into a gigantic glass like this big around so they can empty the whole bottle into it and he's he's sniffing it but he isn't actually appreciating it he selected it because he was told it was the best probably the most expensive that's how he measures things and then he wants it in the biggest glass why so he can look at his possession and then he drinks it and he gets really drunk and has a grand old time but but for what and that's what we are when we use AI as a replacement for reality instead of as a means for deeper engagement with it. So AI has the capacity to be a guide as a kind of sommelier, expert within a certain realm, within a certain uh, realm of things. But we don't want to be like, um, like Dorian Gray, right, who meets this very aesthetic uh, lord, whatever his name is. And then for Dorian Gray, the horizon of his life 
sort of constricts to aesthetics because that's what's representable in that relationship. For Rex Matram, the guy in Bryce that visited, the horizon is shrunk into what is the most expensive brandy so that no picking the brandy is not, is not for the sake of being sensitized to it or engaging with it. It's just for the sake of having picked the best one. And that's what we do with AI when, say, a judge uh, takes the recidivism estimation, which is kind of half right, like it, it does work, in some, can't get it to work in all ways, but, uh, but it works in some ways, and then they just do that, and they don't think about it, and they just decide, like, this guy's 60% chance, so five years. Um, that is an abdication that reduces the human being to a mere functionary in AI-selected menu choices. And so that's where I think it goes wrong, but where it goes right is like when it can smell the air and know whether it's going to rain, like, I want to be able to do that. And if there's a system that can point these things out to me, it's kind of cool. Yeah, sure. Because I just realized there's something I'm confused about. Sorry, I mean, I promise it with you. I just realized on the basis of that answer, I don't really understand what AI is. And well, let me put the question this way. You had asked before about the relationship between statistics and AI, right? Um, and I have been thinking about AI just during your talk as a kind of just, just a, a tool that used statistics to identify correlations that human beings might miss and so would make predictions. But then, in this answer, you were saying it's not something that's about like finding a formula, right? It's about finding things that are even formulas. So can you just say what AI is and, and, and maybe even the same question she had before, like what is AI doing that's different than someone who's doing statistics in a specific kind of way? Yeah, great, great question. So there AI uh, there's a joke that AI is is just whatever effective computer science routines there are that we don't quite understand. And then once we get used to them and can well characterize them, it ceases to become a ceases to be AI. But uh, but a kind of brief history of AI, and I will keep it brief because I want what's your the voluminous hair in the back? You, I know you have a question coming. I, li I like the hair. Uh, uh, but um, the uh, so the AI of the 1950s is usually called symbolic AI. And uh, a kind of just sort of cute but too broad brush assessment of it is that essentially for let's say AI language understanding, they were diagramming sentences and calling that understanding. Like if you can label the parts of it, look it up and then and construct a, a kind of loose response, you've understood it. That's not what we usually consider to be understanding. We, we wouldn't send our kids to English language classes in school where they read literature if understanding were encompassed by diagramming a sentence. Chomsky would. <laughs> Chomsky would send them to English. Yes, but I think Chomsky has a much richer understanding of language than the early natural language understanding pioneers of AI did. And Chomsky, well, anyway, we can, we can talk Chomsky next. Um, but from the sound of it, I bet, I bet you know even more than I do. Um, but what's, what's come to the fore now are these statistical methods in AI where you don't have to classify it. You have to classify the input, you have to classify the output, but you don't have to tell the system how to figure out what to do with something. Um, you, and classifying the input, uh, like I did work in computer vision in, when I was an undergrad, and the methods that were popular in the late 90s were things like you see something, you want to figure out if it's a desk, you like have to draw an outline around using edge detection and then try to, try to sort of remove all hint of perspective so that then you can match it up with other silhouettes of objects in your database. And that's why symbolic AI just didn't really work well. 
it works well for deep blue playing chess, like all the possible outcomes and then ranking them by a score. But you couldn't get a robot to actually navigate through a busy room and socially engage with people. You definitely couldn't have a self-driving car unless it were early, early self-driving cars were just following the lines on the road. So along comes statistical AI, machine learning, neural networks, all these different methods, but they're all based on statistics in the sense that you feed the system a, like 500,000 pictures of desks. This is a desk, that's a desk, that's a desk, that's a desk. All, anything you can think of as desk. You don't have to define desk. The fact of the matter is you can't come up with, it's very hard even to come up with a definition of chair that excludes stool, but includes like a camp chair that has no back on it. Like it's, when, the more you try to think about why do I call this thing what I call it, the harder it gets to come up with a symbolic definition of it. So statistical methods are great because you can just shove every photograph of anything you want to call a chair into it, and it will find whatever you know, deep harmony is making sense of the chair, but we can't see what it's doing on the inside. So it'll spit out the classification of the chair. And it's really good at that. Although sometimes you can fake it out by like shining a light on, on the little screw there and suddenly it gets all confused as a school bus because it sees a bright light with some stripes or something. <laughs> and uh, so, the, so when I'm talking about AI, I guess if I were to sum it up, artificial intelligence is a, is, is a set of computer methods by which to accomplish usually action-oriented uh, classification and correlation that humans themselves uh, do only with difficulty or that they just want done on a massive scale auto, to, to automate decision-making. Um, but yeah, there are different methods. Um, and, uh, uh, but anyway, yeah. Your question. Does that help at all? Yeah. Okay. And I, it's a frustrating field, but uh, it, I forget who it was. One of a, an AI researcher, I was reading a book on AI and it quoted this guy saying something really amusing. He said, artificial intelligence is, uh, is, the only, is the only known field in which the definition of the field is one of the ongoing research projects of the field. <laughs> so, the AI researchers don't even quite know what they mean by it. Maybe we need a neural network to take all examples of AI so it can tell us when it's AI and when it's not. Yeah, your question. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so just to make that answer a little bit before, but I'd love to get some clarification. Um, is there something that makes the renunciation of our own knowledge in favor of the false god of AI more dangerous than, say, religious disciples who interpret a text to justify what we might now consider morally problematic ideas? and deriving a false god from truth. What we might, what might now consider morally problematic. Yeah, things, things, suggestions in the Bible that slavery was, you know, morally justifiable, but things like that. Right, well, um, yeah, because I mean, okay, so let's take the slavery example. They come out of Egypt, they get a law. God says, I have brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now here are some laws for how to handle slaves in your new country. And that's a very strange thing. And so what, what is a, I think an authentically theological way to read the scriptures in that? Well, an authentically theological way is going to take seriously that to read the scriptures, especially the narrative portions of the Old Testament, is not to read recipes for how one is to live but to accompany a people on a journey by which they are being reformed to live in a different way. 
So in Egypt, God just kind of, you know, firebombs Egypt. Then he comes out and it's a little more moderate, like, well, how about just an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? And then it's how to manage your slaves and when you have to set them free. By the time you get to the New Testament, it's turn the other cheek and all these other things. So the, the, uh, what, you're, what you're witnessing there is a, is a slow training of a civilization. Uh, this is why the Nietzsche could look at Judaism and Christianity and say it's a religion invented by slaves to justify their own feelings of insecurity. Well, gosh, we're, you know, we're not on top, but God loves people who aren't on top. The, the point I'm trying to make is that a deep reading of the scriptures takes into account the progress of God's self-revelation, the provisional nature of certain things that are permitted, but then later withdrawn. Because when God permits them, certain things can be done because, and you know, moral theologians will argue like, well, maybe there's some form of slavery that's not utterly immoral. But certainly the kind of slavery in the Hebrew Bible is not what was being practiced in the American South, where it was just like, this, this thing is my property. I can do whatever I want to it. Um, so, so you see what I'm saying, like context matters, history matters, and the ultimate trajectory of this educative reformation of this people toward sharing in the life of God matters. So then, yes, I agree with you that anything can become an idol. Anything that is a, an attempt to reduce reality, not to make it accessible, but to make it controllable, is, becomes an idol. What's the, what's the classic? Like, why does Ebenezer Scrooge not buy anything? He's, he has all the money he needs. He establishes himself as God, in a way, by having all the money he needs, setting a price on everything, and then deciding none of this is worth purchasing. We can do this, that people can do this romantically, where the insecure, like, 17-year-old guy walks into the lunchroom and kind of would like to talk to some of the girls, but he's too nervous. So he plays the other thing, well, none of them are hot enough to talk to. Right? That's the same thing. He's taken, he's reduced all these people to a measure of attractiveness, and then he's decided they don't measure up to whatever I have in mind, so now I don't have to deal with them. It's just like Scrooge not buying anything. Uh, or if, if you take it into like the, the adult romantic sphere, the, like the cultural image of the trophy wife, right? Why is the wife a trophy? Because it's too hard to have a human being you're trying to give yourself to and share your life with but it's really easy to have a kind of appendage that is that is uh physically very attractive or very beautiful that will cause others to admire me because i've captured an attractive mate but then usually these trophy marriages don't go so well and they don't go well because the person has been reduced to a measure of uh, social achievement and human beings rebel against that nobody wants to be treated that way because it's a reduction of what they are and so, yeah, anything can become, so the wife becomes an idol, not because she's loved too much, but just like the kid on the soccer field, she becomes the idol because she is, uh, she's, she's loved uh, for something that is itself merely an instrument of my social advancement or my reassurance to myself. Like, I don't even, you know, we can get into the psychology of like why somebody would kind of fall into that way of marrying, but, uh, but yeah. The, uh, in August, well, I'll just say it, like an Augustinian account of superbia is that superbia is always a dodge driven by insecurity. How does a serpent work? Did God take all this away from me? Well, no, only one thing. Oh, really? Because the kind of guy who would take all things away might take 
one thing away would take all. You know what? He doesn't want you to know that you'll be like him because he's threatened by you and you better seize the power while you can. So there's this whole dialogue in Genesis 3 that's essentially an unraveling of Eve's trust in God. And now she has to shore herself up because now God's dangerous and she has to stand against him. And that's what it means to be a God. So then she and Adam fall to fighting and there's, there's this whole struggle for dominance that arises in Genesis 3 because that's what the serpent tells them God is like. So now go be a god, be like that. It's kind of like Nietzsche, but Nietzsche would still want to go for long walks. <laughs>